ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Security Insider podcast. Uh, today we have with us uh, Jason Brown, the National Security Director of TELUS Australia, and we have Brian DeCares, the CEO of ASIL, and we are talking about why Security Professionals Australia is merging the Security Professionals Registry with the Individual Professional Recognition Program. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So... Let me begin by asking you, Jason, for those people who don't know, what is the security, what is security Professionals Australia? Um, look, it arose out of a series of national seminars and programs uh, where we brought security professionals, many in the private sector, some in uh, government work, recognising that we had a good industry body but we didn't have an individual professional association other than through some international links such as ASS International. And we wanted to focus on what I call the high end, the people in executive roles, um, high level advisors into government and so on, um, to start to identify and develop a bunch of professional standards. Um, and the consequence, we set up a number of entities. We started off with a council type model and ended up with that. We also recognised that there was outside the licensing regime no way of recognising someone who might have a university degree, a PhD in security studies, um, it didn't cover those sorts of people who are advising at that sort of level, the people who might be the chief security officer of an enterprise and so on. So we, we set up a scheme. Um, interestingly, uh, the UK started developing a similar scheme at the same time. We had a lot of dialogue with them, given the, the relationship in our legal systems and processes. So that led us to set up a registry system. And, uh, and a few years ago, we realised running two systems was an issue, um, the Security Professionals Australasia and the Security Professionals Registry. So we altered the constitution to help manage it. But during that period, it was really good to see ASIAL developing an individual recognition program, which is different from the ASIAL general membership. And I've always been involved with ASIAL um, as a provider and guide on services, and, and uh, I've watched ASIAL developers, the lead agency for the industry. So it made sense that we talked to each other. And, and once the professional scheme came out, I looked at it and said, look, there's parallels here. And the big difference was... It co costs a lot of time and energy for a volunteer organisation like the SPA to manage a scheme. Uh, in the UK, the similar scheme, Chartered Security Professionals, um, they have a staff of three or four, but they they have trouble without support from the Security Institute and the Guild, the Worshipful Companies. We don't have that system here. So the obvious partner to build security professionalism for individuals was a partnership between SPA as, I guess, the policy uh, thought leader in standards sure. and development yep. and ASIL. So we had our board meeting, um, unanimous decision to move in this direction, and what we will do is go through a process to offer to current registrants the opportunity to transfer it over at no cost. Then they'll have to maintain their registry, uh, their, their, their membership, um, but they will uh, have that opportunity to make that move. Excellent. So, Brian, uh, over to you. What is the Individual Professional Recognition Program? Basically, it, it arose as a, as a response to demand to have a, a way of recognising people who've worked in the industry uh, who are, uh, over a period of time and, and recognise their skill sets that they've developed over a number of years. So what we put in place was a, a program that uh, required ongoing professional development uh, certain levels of skills and there's certain levels of recognition from a, a member levels, then you get to associate 
fellow than a fellow. Um, and you have to be able to demonstrate uh, proficiency in a whole range of different areas. But the, the idea is to recognise people who have put the work in uh, and developed their skills to a certain level. So that differentiates them from the people who haven't. So for us, it's recognising people are committed to doing what is the right thing and, and actually develop their skill sets. Okay. And so what will this merger mean for the industry? We're bringing the two different registries together. Uh, why and how and what's that going to mean to everyone involved? Well, I think from an Asian point of view, it, it, what we're trying to do is is grow the level of professionalism within the industry uh, at all levels. So I think um, collaboration is much better than having people operating in separate silos uh, and trying to ensure that there is a consistent uh, national program that everyone can uh, basically try and aspire to get to. Um, that's to us, uh, has benefit to clients as well because they have something that they can actually measure uh, a consultant against, for example. So, And I think that's in line with what the government has been seeking is that they, they've struggled to differentiate one person from another because there's no way of actually differentiating. Mm. Yep. And, and that's an important point. The, the um, previous federal governments have supported the registry initiative, um, but the world has become far more complex than when we started this program. Um, so the capacity for a member, associate, fellow or fellow to be recognised um, means... I, when I choose to employ someone, I can say, are they an ASIAL member, is the company, and is the people they're providing to me, are they members, associates, recognised for their professional excellence? So it gives something to measure people by, for people to strive to. So I look at my own staff uh, in Talis, and uh, many of them are currently registered. I will be very happy to bring them across, and I will look for people, just as I do in some of the other areas where I need a particular certification. Um, the other important thing is we did a lot of work looking at the requirements for continuous professional development, and it's a big deal, and we have a very similar competency set in the registry as there, so the things can twin up pretty quickly. And the capacity to have dialogue with universities, TAFEs and others to ensure that their programs reflect our needs means a single voice will be much more effective. Um, and the other area, of course, is... Um, where we start to develop national and international standards, such as the current review of the vetting standard, um, the Handbook on Workplace Assessment, these become critical tools, and therefore the competence required to do that task can be part of the discussion and recognition within a professional individual recognition scheme. So, I mean, pardon my ignorance, but how does this differ from something like ACES's Certified Professional Practicing Professional? Um, look, there's a, there are some similarities, and and I would urge people to do both. I think what we're talking about is a very specific area. ASS International provides CPP and other qualifications, and they're just bringing out some additional ones, and I think they're valuable courses of study. Um, having said that, if someone had the CPP and was... Um, working here in Australia, I would be encouraged them to do this, uh, join this scheme because it's an Australian recognition. I think that's really important. And the legal system in the US is very different to ours and I would hope that we will be able to get bilateral recognition in other countries 
as well. Um, certainly the British scheme, which I'm also a member of because I, I work internationally, um, has great resonance with this. And it's really interesting because when they created that scheme, it was a joint scheme between the Security Institute, which is more similar to the Security Professionals Australasia, and the Worshipful Company, um, as well as input from the security industry group. So it, it was actually a shared certification then. So I think, I think we've got some good models out there and with the developments, I think we will actually make this a stronger way of ensuring that we meet our needs here in Australia without um, impacting on any other additional certification because you might have a CPP or you might have a, another qualification from the Risk Management Institute of Australasia and a, and a focus on security, we can assess whether that gets them to the right grade and so people can carry more than one qualification. But for me, as someone who might be guiding people, uh, who is an employer of a range of security professionals, um, I can look at that and say that's, that's something that I can take as a guarantee that the people meet a standard. Right. So, Brian... I guess over to you then, the next question becomes, if this is something that ASIO uh, with Security Professionals Australia sees as important and is working to put in place, how then do we get the broader community, the business community and government to understand the need to look for these sorts of certifications? Because if no one knows that they exist, then what's the point? Well, from our point of view, it's a slow build. We're not looking to get thousands of people. Um, I think what we want to try and do over time is to organically grow that pool of people. Um, and those people, the program provides a bit of a career pathway for them because at the moment the industry doesn't have very clear pathways for a lot of people. Uh, I think what our aim is to is to certainly to get to government, uh, get to the corporate sector, uh, why this actually matters. So we're, I suppose we're doing it slowly, slowly. It's not going to be a... It's not a race to the finish line, um, but I think it's it is quite a good way for people who are invested in the industry, individuals, to to progress and also to contribute to the industry because a lot of it is actually what can they contribute to the professional development of the, of the industry by being involved in these programs. So I think it's a uh, uh, they are part of the solution as well. The individuals who are out there, so and a lot of them want to contribute uh, and they don't have a way to contribute. So. I think our aim is certainly to is to grow the pool of people that are in the program uh, and to make it more widely acknowledged. But it, I think it takes time. It's, uh, it's not going to be an overnight um, sensation. It's going to be a slow build. Sure. To me, I guess the most obvious question, though, is if I am a, a security professional, whether it be a consultant or whatever it may be, A, what's involved in going through this process? B, what is the cost to me, both time and financially, as an individual to do that? And then C, perhaps most importantly, what do I get out of it? Well, I think the if you go back to the last question, it, the what you get out of it is recognition uh, and acknowledgement of your skill sets and w where you are in your career. So I think that's important. And that's a point of difference from other people that you may be competing against for different jobs. So part of our challenge is to make... Uh, Users of security service acknowledge why someone who's uh, on the program is actually different to someone who's not on the program. So that's our challenge. But I think it is a it is a recognition thing. Um, in terms of the cost, it's I mean it's, we're looking at maybe two hundred two hundred and twenty dollars a year. It's not a huge cost, four or five dollars a week. Uh, there is some requirement to do ongoing professional development, but 
any professional should be doing that as a matter of course anyway. So, and the the cost of that is not onerous. It's, there's many ways to to gain those professional development points. Um, so I would say the cost is the cost should not be the deterrent. It's just whether people want to be recognised, and some people don't want to be recognised. So that's fine. Yep. And so how then do I go through this process? I mean, I know that in the past when it was with Security Professionals Australia, you had uh, a process that they had to undergo. Is it still the same process? Has it changed? And if so, what is that process? Well, it's a very similar process, hence my, my, my excitement and willingness to get to go along these lines. So if I won't go through the criteria in detail, it is available online on the ASIL website. I'm about to issue a number of documents from the SPA on this. Um, but essentially, uh, as a tiered system, you look to number of years of service, quality, there's referees, there's reviews of your application and very similar competency models. Um, and the recognition, once articulated, gives people the opportunity to, um, to badge themselves. I think that's really important. Uh, I think also... It, you become part of a bigger community. Um, there doesn't seem to me to be a point in having professional service providers and professionals implementing security in business as employees in business or as uh, security advisors to other businesses who aren't involved in those. It doesn't seem to me to make sense to have the two things separate in terms of recognition. Um, while it might be in terms of some policy issues, etc., or some political issues, but definitely when it comes down to saying, here is a person and I've got a independent authority I can go to to say they know what they're doing, they've reached a certain level of standard, and they're maintaining that through their professional development, it takes one more problem away from the person selecting a security provider or an employer deciding whether to employ someone in their security team in a business. Yep. So are there plans afoot then to try and get the government to adopt this as their baseline standard for all of their security advisors? Can we bring someone like FaZe on board who are the senior level security managers within Australia to say, we're going to have this as our baseline standard? Because the reality is, unless there's a financial imperative behind this, unless it affects my ability as a professional to get a reasonable job, a lot of people are just going to say, well, that's nice, but yeah, anyway. Yeah, look, I'm happy to comment on that. I mean, I think that is part of the agenda. Um, Certainly, originally, the Attorney-General's Department, when they had the security portfolio, was keen to have some sort of recognition before government is going to act. There's clearly political considerations, social considerations and party policy considerations. Having said that, the current security environment in Australia and globally is such that there is a great deal of concern at the political level. Um, there's already a number of qualifications in physical security areas, such as being a security committee endorsed consultant, SCEC endorsed. There's people with IRAP uh, qualifications in, in there and, and they're very specialist roles obviously in national security spaces. Nevertheless, they um, we need a broader mandate for that. I see people providing security advice who aren't members of ASIL, who aren't members of SPA, giving security advice on projects and when I look at what they've provided from my professional perspective, they don't show the level of depth and understanding that I would have liked. But there's no help for the person purchasing that service to make a judgement because they've got nothing to compare it to. So I, I think government will be supportive but again it'll be slow. I think we have to have a feeling that ministers um, see the need um, but the Attorney-General's Department and Home Affairs are certainly open to a continuing dialogue. It is on their agenda. Um, 
We have a number of events coming forward, such as Protect Security in Government, Safeguarding Australia next year, where this will be part of the dialogue. Um, and uh, there's coming up um, uh, another major event for critical infrastructure protection for industry. Um, we have to ask the question, if you're going to protect your critical infrastructure, who is providing you that advice? What are their qualifications? How much due diligence do you need to do? So this is part of that um, mosaic, if you like, to determine that you've got the right person in the right frame. Um, and uh, because ASIO, um, its its selections are independently validated through the Electoral Commission, I've seen the expansion of the board, I've seen the expansion of skills to do security, and more importantly, the convergence, um, working with other professional institutions in cyberspace particularly, um, I think we have to have a very holistic view of security in today's environment, and this is one of the steps in creating a more coherent, united voice about security um, and the relationship between the private sector and government, individuals and associations. Oh, look, I agree with you wholeheartedly, but it comes back to that thing of if we use um, the accountant as a model, for example, we see everywhere that, you know, are you using a certified practising yep. accountant uh, unless ASIL, and Brian, this is a question for you, unless ASIL has a plan for how they actually intend to create that public awareness so that people know that they need to have a, um, whatever it may be, a recognised security professional, uh, then really it, it just flies under the radar for a lot of businesses because they're not aware it's a requirement. Well, I think it's... Uh, it it's an education process which takes time um, and we do a fair bit of uh, work trying to promote the use of professionals but it is yeah it's a it's, it's a hard uh, ask because you're trying to get to hundreds of thousands of businesses state local federal government but I think it's uh what we see is it's a bit like the corporate members who are members of ours a lot of uh, more discerning uh, people who procure security will prescribe membership of a body like ASIL, uh, others are not aware of that uh, benefit. So it's an education process and we will just have to keep working through uh, articles that we write for a whole range of different trade journals in other areas from the building industry to the education sector is to try and educate people to make an informed choice. And I think, as Jason mentioned, I remember going back probably 2007, um, the then Attorney General Philip Ruddock talking about you know the need for security consultants to be some way of differentiating because there's thousands of them who have a security license and there's a massive gap in experience between the ones who have just set up their chattels to ones who are very experienced who actually know what they are providing advice on and I think we uh, people are relying on it particularly with things like the crowded places strategies they're relying on people to give them the right advice. So part of the, the aim of this program is to give people some reassurance that the consultant or the individual that's coming to give them advice has uh, the experience rather than just someone who set up a business in the last couple of years. So, well, I, I think it would be a, a great thing and I think it's a good place to start and it'd be really nice if government would adopt it because traditionally they've been one of the worst offenders when it comes to this type of thing. Yeah, I wouldn't be so hard on them. Um, when, when it comes <laughs> down to uh, national classified again. stuff, they're, they're pretty tight. But when you move out into general requirements, I think that's the case. And I think there's probably a big gap between the federal and the state levels when it comes to choosing. Um, I won't go into specific details, but I've looked at a couple of cases where 
basically someone was providing security risk management when basically they were an accounting firm that does risk management. No, no idea. But when asked why are they a licensed security provider, because under the legislation, they said, oh, they're just providing risk management. I mean, it just shows that the purchasing people or the people leading the contract actually don't know what they're asking. So there's an education piece for businesses and government to actually understand what security is. And I think um, I'd be looking for a role in uh, leadership in premiers, departments, um, in your critical infrastructure people in states, and certainly at the federal level for a leadership role in helping the Australian businesses and population understand that. I think we're going to see that. I think the moves on looking at reinvigorating the trust information sharing network, the creation of special units in home affairs for critical infrastructure, um, looking at those items. And I'm optimistic that over the next few months we'll start to get more engagement. Um, We've got some stability in government for a little bit, which is um, whatever side of the house you're on stability might be useful. Uh, Certainly to build an understanding at ministers and heads of agencies, this is a good time to start. And we also have new structures in the security regime uh, at the national level with the establishment of the Office of National Intelligence, the coordinating role of Home Affairs. Um, They are settling down so we can now identify the points of dialogue with government at the uh, bureaucratic level, I mean bureaucratic in the positive sense, um, because they're the ones who will help and advise ministers to make decisions. Um, it is, as Brian said, it's not, it's not, it's going to be an education process. It will take time, and what I think we'll be able to do with this is we'll have one place um, before people really wouldn't know where to go. See, I, being around security for a long time, I could say, well, I know what a CPP is. I know what being a registered security professional is. I know if I'm looking at someone who's going to do cabling that they've done the cabling qualifications that ASIL has. So as an informed purchaser of security, I know what ASIL offices, I know what the um, ISACA, the Information Auditing and Security Assurance folk offer. So when I look to people that have their qualifications, I have a certain understanding of what I'm going to get. Now, whether that becomes mandated or we follow another model, and you mentioned chartered uh, accountants, uh, there is another model we, we, we looked at in the SPA, but we lack the resources to follow it up, which is the... Um, Uh, professional standards legislation in Australia and that allows someone to become registered Um, so an organisation such as ASIAL or the Chartered Accountants, they're an example of a registered body, they then provide a legislative overlay which provides certain protections for people which allows for cheaper insurance. So there may be as we go forward additional advantages that we yet to explore through Um, the legal arrangements that designate professions in Australia. Um, I know what ASIL's done, I know what the SPA and the Registry's done. We actually have enough material to think about going forward on that. I'm not going to rush it. We need support from government. But it could be a real advantage for the... the, particularly for people who are looking at the fellow level to be recognised just like a chartered accountant is recognised, just like uh, other professional groups are recognised, not just by their own association, but by the legal regime in Australia. So will you, as in your role as National Security Director for TELUS, for example, be putting in place something within TELUS that says for security people Preference. over a certain mm. level? Yeah, so look, I, I went through with a number of my staff. I mean, I have um, probably 90 people 
doing a range of part-time and full-time security jobs. When I outsource security, the security service providers, I always use ASIO members and the people that's part of the bid. You know, should be a, a member in good standing in, in ACL uh, if they're going to provide, say, guarding services or alarm services. So I already do that. Um, what I'm looking at is my own people to go through. So if I have someone new coming in, they might be out of university from Macquarie, Edith Cowan, you know, UNSW, and they've done security training. I've got them in as a junior, say, site security officer. Um, I would be looking to get them assessed and move them into this scheme so that they as an individual have recognition over and above the job allocation I've given them. I've already I actually got nine staff who I will transfer across to this scheme. Yep. From a corporate point of view, do you see anything standing in the way of organisations putting in place this kind of requirement? There's no HR restrictions or legislation that would stop them? It's competency-based. So what you're defining is not characteristics that would go to any discriminatory issue, etc. What you're saying is the skill set and experience required for the job is reflected in the uh, certification and, and recognition. So therefore when you say, you might say, you know, ASIAL member or fellow preferred um, because there'll be people who haven't registered who might be very good for the job. But by putting it in there, it, it will create an awareness that that's a requirement that might be worth pursuing. And if I had someone come in and who I might want to use, I'll say, look, I'm going to employ you, but one of the tasks of your first six months is to go through this process. Right. Um, yeah. So, Brian, if I'm, if I'm a security manager within a large organisation or a government department or whatever it may be, and I want to know more about this scheme, where do I go? What do I look up? Well, the best thing is to either give the ASIL office uh, a call, uh, visit the ASIL website, all the information's on the ASIL website. Um, it's, it's pretty easy. You can do a lot of it online to apply. Um, it's not a, a time-consuming process. But I think what, what it actually provides is a framework to professionalise the industry, which is what we're trying to achieve, is a more professional, uh, respected um, industry. And I think there needs to be a, a structure that acknowledges that. And that's the sole intention of this program is to is to help professionalise our industry, which plays a massive role, um, and give it a structure, which it hasn't had for prior, prior to this. Yeah. This brings me to another question, and I don't know how much we can talk about this today. This might be another podcast, but... There was a paper that ASIO commissioned recently talking to CEOs around Australia asking about the value that they place on security as a profession. And I imagine the work that you're now doing with Jason and the SPRA um, comes partly from some of that stuff that came out of that paper. But what can you tell me about that paper and what you actually found? This is a really interesting paper because um, there was always a lack of recognition of how critical security was to any organisation achieving its objectives. And sometimes CEOs and others had no visibility. Importantly, government didn't have any visibility. So there's actually two significant papers done by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Um, One of them looked at the use of our security people on the ground as support for counterterrorism and other initiatives for the Protection of Australia. But the one that I think is really important is this one um, from boardroom to situation room, which deals with the level of security professionalism outside that often industry and government don't have real visibility of. So, for example, the Forum of Australian Security Executives, um, it's a 
uh, colloquium, if you like. It's, it's, it's a, a shared group of senior security professionals who, through appropriate processes, share best practice and contribute in a range of ways. Um, but when you have those people in the room, they're the chief security officers for maybe 60% of Australia's GDP. This is significant. And I don't think people are aware of the role security plays in everything. Um, maybe in the banking industry, they want their things good, but they don't have any recognition of the security across a whole range of sites, businesses, people, data transfers. And then when you start to look at... Um, I have 38 sites around Australia. All of them have security requirements. Some of them have guarding requirements. Some of them have uh, uh, control room requirements, IT requirements, surveillance requirements. So as you work through society, um, people need to be secure, whether it's in the car park that they can feel safe to park their car in. Someone is providing a backbone to that. There's, um, and, and I think we need to get people not to think that security is ubiquitous for bad reasons. Security actually enables us to go safely around our business. And that's true in business. Um, and there's sadly, when you start to look at the data of cyber breaches, most of which are caused by human factors, not a cyber attack, a human factor enabling that attack, um, the security of people is critical and the training of people in security practice is critical. And uh, if you get the recent reports, you'll see the majority of, of, of problems are there. And companies that undergo major cyber attacks have a high probability of going bust within a year. I mean, I won't give you the statistics. You can find them on the net. Just look them up. So so I think the issue is we the paper that... Um, uh, Aziel and Aspie put together with input from a lot of people is sending a message that Australia should look at security in a very holistic way. It's not the role of the police. It's not the role of the government. It's all of our role, and particularly in enterprise, where much of Australia's capacity structure from food through banking to roads requires security practice to sustain it in a very complex world. And I just echo what Jason's saying. I think one of the... I think the takeouts from that ASPE report was there is a tremendous capability outside of the government sector in terms of national security, in terms of the private sector. Um, and I think the when I travel around the country with attending different events and speaking with different law enforcement agencies, there's a growing acknowledgement that the police and other government agencies cannot do it on their own. They rely heavily on other uh organizations uh, to assist them so I think it's tr it's trying to work out a mechanism where these different areas can actually collaborate to a for a shared end goal which I think there's uh, 10 20 years ago that may not have happened it was very silo driven now there's uh, you know the, there was the, the phrase need to share there's information now being shared back to industry which I think is um, is important, and I think groups like FaZe and you know we need to collaborate with a whole range of different people um, to get an outcome, which I think is starting to happen, which wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. So the first report um, that we're alluding to was the one on security in crowded places, which is available through ASIO and the Strategic Policy Institute, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. What's the name of the second paper, and is it publicly available yet? Uh, that is available. That's uh, uh, from boardroom to situation room. That's right. Yeah, so that's also available both on the ASPE website and the Asia website. They're both free, um, uh, and I think it's yeah, it's it, it's a thought provoker, uh, and I think it's uh, it made a number of recommendations, um, 
which were all uh, independently done. We had no input in terms of the what the direction it took, but the aim was to get discussion on this issue because it's a bit like a, it's a an unseen industry. Often that the industry is out there day by day doing their job, and a lot of people don't acknowledge the sheer size and scope and capability of both the the in-house corporate sector and also the private security providers. So um, we need to have an understanding and a uh, uh, collaboration with government and a whole range of law enforcement agencies. Yeah. Look, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time today. I think that's given us a good overview of what it is that we're doing as far as professionalism or what you're doing as far as professionalism is concerned and why people need to be involved. If people have any questions, they can either, Jason, I'm assuming, look up the Australian Security Professionals website or Brian the Asia website. Yep. Yep, I, I think that's right. I'm happy to have personal contact and it can be done through uh, Security Solutions magazine as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to catching up with people at a range of events coming forward and uh, get some articles out um, uh, in the ASIL magazine and, and, in, and in Security Solutions and on my security and other groups who get the message out there. And uh, that's certainly my intention. Um, I'm hoping that the work that ASIL's done in supporting the ASPE paper, which, as Brian said, was independent of our views, it was a, it was a bringing together of a lot of uh, information. Uh, we can use that as a vehicle to enhance the private sector, uh, public sector dialogue in this area. Excellent. All right. Oop, sorry, that was a bit loud, wasn't it? Um, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time today. And obviously, if anyone's got any questions, contact ASIAL or they can contact the Security, Fresh Security Professionals Australia. Don't forget there are other podcasts just like this one available from uh, ASIAL on the Security Insider podcast series available through iTunes, Google Play, the Apple Store and all the other great places that uh, podcasts live and we look forward to catching up with you again next time.